His tears said what his words could not, or what his words were not yet capable of saying. He was an attractive, affluent man, maybe five years older than I was. This was in my first ministry about a decade ago, and he was sitting in my office just completely sobbing, tears running down his cheeks, struggling to find the right words to say what he needed to say so he could start to feel unburdened. From the outside, his life would have appeared to have been going okay. He had a good job, earned a good living, seemed to be respected by the people that knew him. But the last few years, something had turned and not for the better. Some plans that he had made had not turned out in the way that he thought they would. Some relationships that he had really banked on had disappointed him or he had disappointed them. And he found himself in a place in which the life he thought that he was building for himself was not the life that he had. And then finally he, he got to it. He collected himself. He gathered himself. And through the tears he able to, was able to say this. And it has remained with me ever since. It feels like my time is escaping me. It feels like my life is disappearing. All apologies to the who. He felt like he was dying before he had a chance to get old. And it was not at all a hope fulfilled. His life was, as I experienced him then, and he started to get to the center of and actually started to make some progress with, his life at that time is almost as if it was running away from him. Running, 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 and he was doing all the running, but it still was faster. Still, he could not catch up. This was a particularly acute moment for him, but I think all of us from time to time feel like this. Is that all there is? The sand's just falling down through the hourglass, whether the days of our lives or not. We feel, where does the time go? And why does there seem to be so little of it left? And the stuff that we have doesn't seem sometimes to be as meaningful as we might wish. The question we ask in these moments, are we actually alive in time, in the time of our lives? Or is time just running away, running down, running further than we can and we cannot catch up? His story, as I remember him, and struggling with this question of time and meaning, reminds me of an article that I was sent earlier this month. It was from the health section of the New York Times. Really what it was is about our perception of time and how that exists in our brains or in our minds or in our mindset. I want to read it to you from right now. And it was like, I think January 4th, it was right in that period where people were making resolutions and wanting to stick to them, but then also maybe reflecting, well, what happened last year's? And this is what he writes, the writer wrote. Many people have the defeated sense that it was just yesterday, just yesterday, that they made last year's resolutions. But then the year snapped shut, and they didn't start writing that novel or even attend one Pilates class. But it is precisely, precisely because they did not act on their plan that time seemed to have just flown away from them, run away from them. By contrast, some new research shows that focusing instead on goals or challenges that were in fact engaged during the past year, whether or not we called them resolutions or not, it gives the brain, it gives our mind the opportunity to fill out the past year with memories and so expand our sense of perceived time. 
I conclude this message series, this New Year's message series today, in this last day of January, with the hope that for all of us, the greatest plan we could have is to make our time the time that we are given our own. Now, I don't mean that in a hoarding sense, like, give me back, give me back my time. But to make our time truly our own so that we are alive in the time that we are given in this life. I started to notice, perhaps as I was playing out this message series over this past month, I started to notice a, a verbal tick that, that I saw in some folks and I saw in some movies and also in, uh, in some television shows. Um, when people say, somehow, uh, somehow, you know, I got there, or somehow this arrived, or, or somehow I was a further down the road. You know, that somehow can be just a way of, you know, shortening a story. If, you know, long story short, we don't want to tell everything. It's sort of like, you know, yada, yada, yada from Seinfeld, you know. But somehow can also be not just a way of shortening a story, but actually shortening our lives. Because sometimes when people say somehow, they're actually not really aware of how they got to a certain place. I was moving through life. I was driving down the road, and then somehow I arrived at X. Well, somehow can reveal that we weren't alive in that time, and we actually don't know how we got to the place that we are. That somehow can reveal a life in which time feels fleeting, or leaden, or boring, or a curse, or running away in front of us instead of time feeling at its best that it is full in the full flow of existence. There's a woman who teaches and researches at Harvard University named Ellen Longer, and she talks about mindfulness. Now, many of us know about mindfulness in terms of mindfulness meditation. We know about mindfulness in terms of the practice of being fully alive, fully engaged with what is going on in our lives at the very moment, aware of the present moment. She expands on this idea of mindfulness in relationship with boredom. She says when we are bored, most likely we are making a mistake. When we say we are bored, we are confusing one thing with another. The thing that we are confusing is our mindset, which assumes that things are fixed. There's nothing new here. We assume that our mindset that says there's nothing new here, everything is fixed, I'm bored, it's obvious. She says the things that we confuse is the mindset with reality. In fact, reality is ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-becoming. It is our own minds that let us see the world or lie us into seeing the world that somehow it's fixed and done and there's nothing new under the sun. In this way, the cliche, been there, done that, is not just an obvious figure of speech. It is, in fact, a lie about our very lives. There are very few things I think we can say that been there, done that, absolutely seals it off. In many ways, Professor Longer is really just saying 150 years later, and with the benefits of research and science, what our own great prophets of the intentional spiritual life Thoreau was saying, and what he wrote on the banks of Walden Pond. He's talking about how we might resist change, how we might see the depth and complexity and meaning of reality. And this is what he wrote. He says, this is the only way, we say, this is the only way. But no, there are as many ways as there can be drawn radii from one point out to the center. Many ways. And then the key phrase, all change is a miracle, he writes. 
All change is a miracle to contemplate, but it is a miracle which is taking place every instant. Every instant. And then he, in non-joking form, concludes by quoting Confucius. Confucius said, To know that we know what we know, and that we do not know what we do not know, that is true knowledge. To know what we know and to know that we do not know, that is true knowledge. And this is true mindfulness, we can add as well. When we learn that time is changeful, full of change, full of becoming, full of invitation to recognize that truly nothing is obvious, then our time and our lives become abundant. Our time and our lives become full. Because when there is learning to do in every instant, none of us ever has the right to say, aha, I got it, it's obvious. It's not. When we can live in this way, something really does shift within us, something almost magical if you have been able to experience your life this way. We recognize that time is not a given. It's not a set quantity. But our attitude towards our time. Time expands or contracts. Time seems scarce and meager and like it's running away from us, or it is abundant and rich and wonderful and full, depending upon our ability to have conscious contact with the lives that we live. Full-time is not just about accomplishing a plan, although that is part of full-time. Full-time is any time that you and we are intentionally in touch with. There's a famous passage from the miracle of mindfulness from Thich Nhat Hanh that I know some of us have read. And this book from Thich Nhat Hanh, The Miracle of Mindfulness, was the first book that really introduced to me the concept of mindfulness, of true mindful living. Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about a friend of his with whom he is engaged in a peace movement and also part of his spiritual community. And he's relating the story of this shift in consciousness that his friend has had from really kind of a scarce mindset to a more abundant one. This Man, this young parent used to consider all the time that was his son Joey's as, you know, Joey needs to help with his homework and Joey needs to be, you know, put down to bed and Joey needs to be fed. And, and the thing that his friend, Thich Nhat Hanh's friend, was recognizing was that all the time that he thought was Joey's, he was giving off and giving away and was assuming it wasn't his. And at the end of the day, he had just this little final tiny sliver to himself. But the shift in consciousness, which actually wasn't in any particular way any change at all externally, but a complete revolution in his own thoughts, was that the time he spent with Joey was his time. The time he was with his son was as much his time as time when he was on his own. There was no difference. It was all his time. And so in that way, Thich Nhat Hanh's friend's time became full again not defined by its scarcity or its lack, but defined by what he was in conscious contact with. Now, sometimes this phrase, thinking that we don't have enough time, it translates into one of two ways. Something is happening that I don't want, or I don't like, or something that I want is not happening. One or two. Something is happening that I don't like, or something that I want to happen is not happening at all. I heard a particularly sort of silly example of this this past week. One of my guilty pleasures is uh, uh, sports radio, sports talk radio. 
Not exactly a uh, Algonquin roundtable, for those of you who know that. It's not exactly a wonderful intellectual paragon of, of dialogue. Um, so in the Sports Talk Radio, this guy was really lamenting the fact that the, for those of us who are football fans, yeah, this is the first Sunday in many months in which there's not a real football game. And, you know, I am used to that, too. I leave here, I go home, I watch some football games. It's nice. I've gotten used to it. I like it. Well, what this guy said is that uh, he had this plan that he was going to hatch, which is no more football. He's very, very upset about this. So what he was going to do is plan. He was talking about this on Friday. He was going to go out on Saturday night, stay out really, really late, get really, really drunk. And so what he would do then is because he'd be hungover and he'd be really tired, he could sleep until 4 o'clock in the afternoon today. So what time is it? Oh, he's got at least almost four and a half more hours in front of him right now if he really did hatch his plan. That's how he was going to save himself from having to be alive in time in which something was happening that he didn't want or something that he wanted was not happening. So actually, I was thinking I'd have this modest proposal for him if I ever meet this guy. I don't think I will. But actually, that what, what he should do is uh, hibernate at the end of football season. He should dope him up in whatever way crawl into a cave, come out to do what he needs to do from time to time, stir when he needs to, arouse himself when he needs to, and then go right back to bed. He can go to sleep at the beginning of February and wake up at the end of August, beginning of September, and in that way, he will only get what he wants, which is Sundays with professional football in them. Of course, the problem is he's just given away half his life. He was trying to kill the time and kill the space in which something was happening that he did not like or something that he wanted was not happening and killing the time. How can I get past this? This is a kind of outrageous perspective on time, but how often do all of us do this, even in small ways? Think about killing the time instead of filling the time. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh was talking about. To move from that kill the time to fill the time kind of attitude is what Thich Nhat Hanh's friend was able to do by entering into a mindful relationship with his time and to recognize it was all his time, even if his pre-prescribed plan for what he wanted to happen, for what the high points would be, wasn't happening. It was all his time. How do we do this? How do we exist in this shift in consciousness so that we are able to go from someone else's time or not my time, to it's all of our time. The first is in the way that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it, by practicing mindfulness. That wherever we are, there we are, that is the time we are alive in. If we're there, we can't be in any other place simultaneously and just commit ourselves to waking up in the time that we are given. But there's another way to do this, another way that I've cultivated in addition to greater mindfulness practice in my own life, it is the way of learning to map the changes or the things that happen around us, mapping them onto the intentions that are within us, within our head, within our heart, within our mind, within our soul. This is where the message title comes from, this message series title. We want to make God laugh, tell God your plans, but if you want to make God smile, plan on your spiritual growth. This is about being so intentional about our intentions that we recognize that the happenings in our lives can come back and feed us. This is very often what's called in different circles, framing a story, 
Framing a narrative. Putting a frame around something determines how we experience the meaning of our lives. Got a great example of this a couple of years ago by a writer named Tad Waddington who said he was talking about how he really uh, precipitates and brings about change in his life. And he was saying no longer, I don't try to get up off the couch. I don't try to eat you know, fewer potato chips. I don't try to be less lazy. I do battle with that dreaded sloth monster. He said, I don't diet anymore. I try to tame the beast called gluttony. See, what he's doing there by putting that frame around it is he is setting his own life story into a larger life story. And so in this way, his time opens up to a deeper dimension of time. I want to show you a little of the way that I do this, and I apologize for the really shoddy brain science that I'm about to do with you right here. This is very, very, very layman's terms if you show that slide. This is my brain. Now, 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 uh, for those of you who know me, um, we'll, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. For those of you who know me uh, and you're asking the question of, uh, I don't see baseball and I don't see the TV show Lost listed up here, so this cannot possibly be Ken's brain, they're folded into the things that are already here. And this isn't all of my brain, if you will, but it's some important parts. And I want to show you at least how I try and make sense of the things that are happening around me by mapping them to the intentions within me. you see up here first... Over to, yeah, my right right now. Pema Chodron, the American Buddhist nun. I have struggled a lot in my life with the reality of anxiety, fear, worry, you know, uh, worrying about if I'm always doing things right all the time. Am I on guard? Well, Pema Chodron writes a lot about in her practice and in her teaching about the kind of spirituality that does not run away from fear. I mean, Obviously, we need to get away if we're being physically imperiled. But she's talking about that deeper fear, that deeper anxiety, the kind of worry that keeps us up at night. And she said, so many of us, and this resonates with me and who I have very much been in the past, wrestle and wrestle and struggle and struggle and go over and over and over in my mind. She said, well, learn to face those fears. Learn to know the places that scare you. This actually maps onto a particular part of the brain that's called the amygdala. I'm not going to ask you to spell it. But it's the oldest part of who we are, it's the most reptilian part of who we are, and it's very responsible for particularly afflictive emotions like anger, constant worry, and anxiety, and dread. And so perhaps, at my best, (laughs) what I really do is that when I'm in one of those moments when I am fearful, what I try to do is think, okay, the Pema Chodron part of my brain is getting stimulated. (laughs) How am I not going to flee from this? How am I going to face the lesson that is right here, right now? Moving up, we see Edwin Friedman, referring to, at least in my brain, the part that's, uh, in all of our brains, it's just Edwin Friedman in my brain, the part of the brain that's called the anterior cigulate. It is the part of the brain that balances, learns to negotiate between reason and emotion, between thought and feeling. Edwin Friedman, those of you probably might not know too much about him, he is sort of the father of what's called systems theory applied to congregational life. The basic teaching that, you know, once we are in any kind of organization, any kind of community, there is a life there present that is a system that exists between us. We are not just solitary individuals when we are together in community life. Edwin Friedman talked about in community life, in systems, that the most mature within those systems are the people who can balance, not skew to one side or the other, but balance between fully experiencing their feelings and knowing their thoughts. 
that true emotional maturity comes in the place in which we can honor thinking and feeling, not slight one or the other, but fully exist with both and honor the knowing that comes from each. When we do this work, when I do this work in this balance, spiritual practice is also a particular part of a book called How God Changes Your Brain by a guy named Dr. Andrew Newberg. When we have regular contemplative spiritual practice, especially spiritual practice that is focused on increasing our compassion, this is the part of the brain that it quote-unquote feeds. This is what I learn, and this is how I try to map those places in which I feel tussled within me between emotion and logic. Moving down here, what no doubt got the laugh from all of you, is what I call Bruce Springsteen and Lord of the Dance. It's part of what they call the brain that's the limbic system that is very often associated with something that I knew well from my experience before uh, I knew what it was actually called, which is the experience of euphoria or the experience of ecstasy. It was something that I sought in my life for a couple decades, largely through artificial means, because I wanted to escape from my existence. I mean, I wanted time off. I wanted time away from being who I was. Well, the reason it's called Bruce Springsteen and Lord of the Dance is I'm, I'm, I like actually traditional Irish step dance, not a fan of Michael Flatley. Um, but the first time that I ever went to a, uh, I mean, the, no one's chest is puffed out that much. Come on. That's just affectation. That's silliness. Um, that's, that's ego is what it is with him. That's exactly what it is. Uh, the first time I ever took my, I went to a uh, Bruce Springsteen concert with my wife, she was really surprised because... She said at the end, that was two and a half hours in which you danced the entire time. I'm one of those people who, well, I'd have to sort of give myself a lot of liquid courage in the past to get out there and dance so I could feel I could lose myself. But here I was, sober as a judge or as a minister in this case, just letting it go. Just dancing. Just dancing. That part of me is fed is when I can trust that euphoria and ecstasy is something that does not have to be forced, is something that we can choose. And then finally, the final arrow up here, Thomas Merton, I call him, the parietal lobe, the part of our brain that for those people who engage in regular contemplation, regular meditation or prayerful practice that brings us into the understanding of the nature of our minds. Well, the cool thing is, and with brain scans, you can actually see this happening. For people who are advanced in these contemplative practices, this part of the brain that differentiates me from you, from self, from object, this part of the brain goes very, very quiet. And what we experience in these moments, if you ever have, is a moment of unity, a moment of complete, as it almost was, absorption into the larger life, the God consciousness, the full true nature. Thomas Merton, who was a Cistercian monk and encouraged people worldwide, not just in his own tradition, to cultivate this capacity for experiencing true unity. This is also how I choose to use my time to actually experience this, not just think about it. Now, what I encourage you to do, if you like this little particular way of naming your story or naming the parts of your brain and seeing how they're activated, is to find, you know, what is your Bruce Springsteen slash Lord of the Dance? What is your Thomas Merton, your Edwin Friedman, your Pema Chodron? Because when we can link up our own aspirations and our own intentions to grow spiritually, something truly magical happens. 
is that, yes, our time becomes our own because we are mindful in our lives, choosing to be here and then to be here and then to be here. We find that we truly do know that our time is our own. But when we can link our story up to the stories of others, we recognize that our time becomes more than our own. Our common aspirations invite us into that deeper dimension of existence in which we are never alone. Our time becomes others' time as well, not because we're giving it away, but because we are profoundly connected. A remarkable gift is given us. It is not just that we plan to use our lives well, but that we also receive our lives back as a blessing and as a grace. Regardless of how many years we have, regardless of how many years you have lived, regardless of how many years you are going to live, our lives, which is to say our time, is actually more full and becomes more abundant. And who we are and what we have is enough. It also moves us beyond what I think is a very false argument between on the one hand being in time as complete randomness. Please excuse my language, but the phrase goes, eh, shit happens. Just that randomness. And on the other hand, you got that cliche, which I'm not really very fond of, although I know for some people it's very calming, but I actually experience it as quite cruel, which is that, well, everything happens for a reason. Everything is just, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything. Everything happens for a reason. Well, I think those are two false choices between complete randomness and complete scriptedness, which is this. In everything, meaning can be made. In everything, wisdom can be realized. In everything, we can become full human beings and enter into that dimension of kindness, love, generosity. It has so many names, but I think most of us know it as true awakening, a true flourishing of who we are. This past week, a guy named Howard Zinn died. How many of you know that name? Howard Zinn. He's a professor for many, many years at Boston University. And although his politics were Quite a bit more radical than my own. I do have to say when I read his People's History of the U.S., People's History of America, it is one of those moments when, you know, your worldview just gets blown up. You see, I went to, went to boarding school. I went to Hill School up here when it was really, really, really traditional and all boys. And this was my understanding of history, at which I did really well. Um, a bunch of uh, kings and then a bunch of presidents, mostly all pretty much white guys. And then you throw in a bunch of wars there, memorize a few dates, and boom, there's history. <laughs> Well, Howard Zinn's understanding of history was much more complex, much more deep, much more rich, and much more real. He featured and he wrote about how the stories of common people strove and struggled for justice and kindness, and that the history, the true history of who we are, is not just written by the most notable names, but sometimes names that history likes to forget. He died this past week. Someone excerpted a piece of an essay that I love the title of. It's called The Optimism of Uncertainty. The Optimism of Uncertainty. I'm going to read it to you now, parts of it. It starts with a very simple sentence. We need hope. We need hope. 
To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, Professor Sin wrote. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not just of cruelty, but of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize is that in this complex history will determine the quality and the time of our lives. If we only see the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act. And at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different and deeper, more wonderful direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some utopian future someday. You see, because the future is just an infinite succession of presents. One present, after another present, after another present. And to live now as we believe human beings might at their best, in defiance of all that is bad around us, to live as we would wish is itself a remarkable victory. I've got to say this is probably the most mystical that I have ever read and how I have ever read a historian. The future is just an infinite succession of presents. It's not someplace far off, far away. It is happening right here, right now. Because the minute we say the present, it has become the future or the past. It is just an infinite succession of moments that we can shape and share. At base, what it means is that time is open. The past is not closed. Our lives are not done. We are here. Inviting us at this last day of this first month of this new year to know, and I hope all of us know this deeply, deeply in our bones, that nothing that any of us started in earnest, that nothing any of us will ever start in earnest, with full intention and with full mindfulness, nothing ever done in this fashion is ever started too late. In fact, when we fully commit ourselves to something, there is no such thing as too late because then we are fully in our lives and fully present. And that time waiting to open for us, waiting to open us up, as long as we pay attention, time is not done with us. Time remains, and neither is this life done with us. Amen. May you live in blessing.